Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. We're dealing with uh, some technical issues we've dealt with in the last few podcasts, and I want to apologize for those, but we're going to make the best of it. And uh, a little bit different background here, but a powerful, powerful guest on the Intentional Encourager podcast today. If you're watching on YouTube, again, you're going to see a little bit different, but if you're listening, no difference at all. Um, I have a tremendous guest on with me today. He is an author of the book, triumphant surrender, a speaker, and he has got a powerful story he's going to tell today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. It is an honor to welcome Tony Green to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Tony, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. I'm so glad to be here. How are you doing? I am doing well. You know what? Last year, we found out in the pandemic the power and importance of webcams. And uh, my webcam has been glitching the last few days. I'm working on getting that recovered. We'll get that taken care of, but it's not going to slow us down one bit for this podcast. And I'm so excited to have you. Tony, I want to start here. Everybody has dealt with the coronavirus pandemic in different ways. I know how it's affected us here in West Virginia, but I want to get your perspective on how the last 15, 16 months have been for you personally, professionally, how, how has COVID impacted you and what's a lesson that you've taken away from the last 15, 16 months? Well, you know, um, one of the things, I I think it's a lesson that I already had, but has been reemphasized to me is isolation. Uh, at least in my life, isolation is not a good thing. Uh, and I need to be in contact with people and I need to be in fellowship with people and I need to um, constantly be talking to people. Uh, and uh, it's just, uh, even though we could do it on the phones and we could do it on Zooms, and I respect the pandemic and all of that, it was a really challenging time. Uh, I've got friends in the recovery community that were so used to going to meetings, you know, all the time to help them. And then all of a sudden there were no meetings to go to, um, at least in person. And it really changed the dynamic. You know, I'm sure corporate America continued to crank. Uh, They learned how. Uh, They have goals that way. But in our personal lives, when our emotional um, state is, can either be stable or unstable, fragile or unfragile, uh, I know it really affected people. And and I know that that, uh, suicide rates went up. I know that uh, addiction rates went up. I know divorce rates went up. Uh, and so anyway, I'm glad that we're kind of, you know, we've got some more freedom now. I love to see people smile. You know, when I'm walking down the street, I, I greet everybody. Uh, my daughter calls me the mayor. Uh, and so, uh, because I greet everybody, but, um, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm glad the isolation is starting to, uh, cut back some. You know, it, it's funny that, the power of a smile. I love what you just said there about the power of a smile because, you know, and and not trying to get political or anything like that, but wearing a mask all the time, 
you cannot see people and their facial reactions. And that is so important in connection because, you know, if, if I'm doing this in connection, if I'm looking away from you and I'm not making eye contact with you, or you can't see that I'm genuinely glad to be interacting with you, it leaves a feeling of emptiness. You were talking about the recovery community, and, and I want to, I'll go there with you in a little bit when we get into your story. Okay. That's powerful to me because of where I live. We, we live near the epicenter of the, the opioid crisis, the, yes. the drug epidemic in, in Huntington, West Virginia, about 15 minutes from me. So you, I, I love what you said there about that community needing to be together, the power of fellowship and things like that. What happens when people in the recovery community can't get together in fellowship? How dangerous is it for those people as far as relapse is concerned, because I would have to think that there is strength in numbers and there's strength in sharing one with another. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, you know, um, the, when I think about it, you know, I had a counselor tell me at one point in time, uh, and it was a treatment counselor told me that uh, the more time we spend in our heads, we spend behind enemy lines. Uh, and, and really that is where somebody who there's a real cross section in the addiction community with mental health disorders. Uh, and, uh, that's where, when all of a sudden people start running away in their minds, when, when they're isolated and running away in their minds and heck I've experienced this, it's part of my story, uh, is that some of the most, some of the craziest thinking in the world, all of a sudden sounds totally rational. Uh, and you know, it's like, you know, who, who loves me on the face of this earth? What purpose do I have? I might as well end it. You know, people start thinking about, uh, suicide and isolation, uh, which is just, you know, an absurd thought and, and Hey, I've got a failed suicide attempt. So, uh, it is, um, it's just one of those places I never want to go back to. But one of the things in recovery, when people could get together every day and go to meetings, they always were able to reconnect with other people who had had the same struggle with them. The, the first chapter in my book uh, is a chapter called You're Not Alone. Uh, and that's one of the pieces of encouragement that I wanted everybody to understand because sometimes when we run away in our heads in isolation, we think we're alone. We think we're the only person struggling with whatever we're struggling with. And I wanna assure people that uh, that's not the case. Uh, and when they get back in community, you know, I have, I have a, a middle, I've got four older siblings and one of my siblings lived homeless uh, for a year and a half. And she told me, and I write about this, but she told me that the, the worst part about being homeless was to be invisible. Um, she, nobody said hi, nobody gave her a smile. Nobody, um, you know, offered her an ounce of respect. Nobody asked her about her story. She wasn't just looking for money. She was just looking for interaction. Uh, and I think one of the things COVID did to us with all these masks and with all the paranoia is that um, it really cut back on the on the healthy interactions uh, that we could have with each other. Well, and, and I love what you said there about the isolation because, again, People, human beings, God created us all to be connecting and be connected, you know, first to him 
And then secondly, to each other, it's why God created Eve for Adam, because the Bible said it's not good for man to be alone. Right. He must have someone there to help him and be a help me to him. And I love what you said there, Tony, about connecting with people and being involved with people and understanding what people need and things like that. What's your biggest um, concern? I'm not going to say fear because there's enough fear being propagated right now among right. Our, our media. What's your biggest concern going forward? Should this thing prolong and, and some, some things return that we are hoping don't return? What's your biggest concern for the homeless community, the recovery community around the, the continued on, ongoing of COVID-19? Yeah, I think, uh, Brian, I live in Arkansas, and Arkansas is one of the worst states right now with, with rising COVID rates. Uh, I believe, and, and I'm not getting into politics here, but I believe uh, about 95% of the cases in the hospitals today are people who have not been vaccinated. Uh, I got to tell you, I, um, last Thursday, I got a summer cold, uh, and I didn't freak out about it, you know. Uh, Brian, I'm a believer. I know my days have, are numbered. Uh, I'm, God's going to cross me over whenever he chooses. So I've, I've never freaked out about COVID, but, um, I did, um, I did get vaccinated and I got both my vaccinations. And when I got this summer cold last week, I, 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 I didn't have much fear that it was COVID, but I wanted to do the right thing and do the right due diligence. And I went to Walgreens and got a test and yeah. found out last night that it was negative, but the thing that concerns me the most, because I, Arkansas is about to get back into uh, potentially mandated masks. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Walmart's handing out masks now when you walk in the door and asking people to um, wear them while they shop. And one of the things, you know, it, it, again, the recovery community, the homeless community, both are near and dear to my heart. The jobless community, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, the enemy uh, tries to use against us to get us down emotionally. Uh, and Brian, what I've found out is, is I look at my health on seven different dimensions. Uh, and it's my spiritual health, my physical health, my emotional health, my financial health, my relational health, my vocational health, and my uh, recreational health. All the others depend upon me being healthy emotionally. If I'm screwed up emotionally, anything else can fall apart. And in my past, I would have told you my spiritual health is number one. But for my spiritual health to be strong, my emotional health has to be strong. Well, and Tony, uh, let and me jump so, in here. That That is why I continue to tell people the thing that you need to do every day is encourage yourself. Absolutely. I continue to preach that. I continue to preach that on my social media channels because I don't think people understand that when you're encouraged, then everything else around you begins to take shape. Everything else around you absolutely lifts. And, and it's the old adage, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, if you lift that tide with encouragement, everything around you, your career, your marriage, your finances, if, if you can encourage yourself every day, everything around you also gets encouraged by, by osmosis. Everything around you gets it, it's it's almost as as the air that you breathe and i love what you said about the most important check that you can do 
is to your mental health, to your mind, to your spirit. Was that a, a aha moment for you? Or was that something that took a period of time? Because some people, and here's where I'm going, and I don't mean to ask a long-winded question, but I wanted to piggyback off of what you said. Some people get it. It's like a vision. It's like, ah, that's it. Some people come to that through a process, through a series of steps. For you finding out not only those dimensions, those seven dimensions you talked about, but finding out what was most important. Was it an aha moment or was it a process? You know, I knew it was a moment that was coming, but it happened in an aha. Uh, and uh, we're, we'll get into the um, depth of my testimony uh, after the break. But one of the things is I used to, um, I used to be a vice president in corporate America with Coca-Cola and I made tons of money. Everything I touched turned to gold. I had the BMW convertible. I had the sexy wife. I had the big house. I was making, you know, millions of dollars over, over the years. Uh, and everything was great. And my, my self-identity was Tony, you're pretty dang great. You know, you're, you're good. You're good. You're good. You know, it was an egotistical, uh, identity. Uh, I still was desperate for people to encourage me, uh, and feed into me, Brian, but that, that's what I lived. And then all of a sudden, uh, I fell off my high horse, uh, and I became homeless and I became addicted to alcohol. Uh, and all of a sudden my new identity was Tony, you're a loser. You are worthless. You have ruined everything. Uh, and I got to tell you two years ago this month, I laid down on an inner city sidewalk in Cincinnati uh, to sleep. Uh, and it was, it was my lowest moment and I've had some low ones. Uh, but when I came up off that sidewalk that next morning and I had not been mugged, I had not been robbed. I had not been killed. I knew at that point in time that I needed to cozy up to God and change the way I thought about myself. The, the, my, my mental state on what I think about myself drives my deepest core belief and my deepest core belief uh, it, it wasn't really good when I was egotistical and it was awful when I was, uh, eat up with toxic shame. Uh, but right now, and, and I have a whole chapter on this, you know, God, God says, I am who I am based yeah. on my identity in Christ. And that is what I speak into myself every single day now, because I wake up to a nightmare every single morning and the nightmare is a life totally changed. And it's up to me within the first 15 minutes of the, of the morning to change my attitude and get right back in the right attitude. And that's, that's up here. Uh, well, and that's speaking life into myself based upon who God says I am. Well, and Tony, that's the thing is what happens to an addict is they constantly fight the fear of going back. It, right. it is they wake up every morning knowing that their past is right over their shoulder. And if Absolutely. the past gets over their shoulder and it gets between their ears, that's where the damage is done. And so I love that. And, and, and I was keenly aware uh, when you were talking about Cincinnati, we're not far from Cincinnati, Ohio, three right. hours down, down to the West. And, um, you know, I've grown up a Cincinnati Reds baseball fan, a Cincinnati. So when you mentioned Cincinnati, that, that kind of perked my ears up there and, um, we are going to get into more of Tony's story here in just a moment. Um, we're going to talk about his book. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about his book, Triumphant Surrender, how that came about. And then later on, stay with us. 
because you're going to want to hear Tony's powerful story. My guest, author and speaker, Tony Green, here on the Intentional Encourager podcast, back in just a moment. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you, as a business owner, can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Tony, let's get into the book, Triumphant Surrender. Having written and published a book myself last year called People Buy From People, I understand the process of writing a book. It's hard. It's a hard process. A lot of people say, well, I'm working on a book. and and But to actually get that thing to completion is a hard, hard process. I want to talk through you about the emotions of writing a book like that, because I know the emotions that I felt when I was writing about my late father and the advice that he had given me. There were times that it became very emotional to write. Did you face those same things? And what were those emotions like for you as you were telling your story in Triumphant Surrender? You know, Brian, uh, for the past, it, it was like I became a believer when I was 40 years old. Uh, and it's like God was giving me, in my first 13 years, I mean, I was just, I was still making all the money. I still was living uh, in the world. Uh, I was enjoying it, uh, and I wasn't a fruitful believer at all. But God kept giving me all these fragments, and 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 I, I'm a journaler, so when He would give me something, uh, I would write it down. Uh, and I didn't know if it was coming from my head or if it was coming from God or what, but I knew it was something that I hadn't thought of before. And it finally dawned on me. I was going. I was on the uh, the um, I was on the verge of a divorce. Uh, and I was really down and I went walking in the um, neighborhood that morning at like 4.30 a.m. Uh, and just for about an hour and a half, just to get my head straight and stop the racing thoughts in my head. And when I got back, I journaled everything down. And Brian, at that moment, I knew that I had not thought up anything uh, that was that. It, it was like a gift from the Holy Spirit that that stuff had been revealed to me that had never been revealed to me before. And I felt so humbled at that mm -hmm. point. And that's really when my relationship with the Holy Spirit started. And people kept telling me over the years, Tony, you're going to write a book. You're going to write a book. It's going to change people's lives. And I went, nah, I'm not going to write a book. I mean, shoot, I struggle with alcohol. I've fallen. I've lost everything yeah. that I've ever had. How am I going to write a book? Well, you and know, Tony, let me jump in here. It, it is not the easiest thing in the world to do when you're an executive in a Fortune 500 company to write a book about struggles because nobody wants, you know, the company says, well, or the company could come to you and say, wait a minute, 
this is probably not good for business. This is probably not good right. for, for everything else. And, you know, it's hard to, people don't understand, and, and I've got to jump in here for a minute. People don't understand that, you know, it, it's easy when somebody says you should do this or you should do that because they're not making the time investment and they're not exposing themselves, so to speak, in, in writing that book and some of the other things that could come about from it, like, hey, are you really sure you want to tell that? Well, we need an advanced copy to make sure things are not as, you know, that you're not revealing secrets and things like that. So it's easy when people get in your ear and go write a book. The hard part is getting everything together and, and things like that. When you were journaling those things, and that that is a, a common practice for executives to do is to journal things. Did you feel like at times it was a part of what you were doing day to day in your work? Or did you feel like this was something outside of, of your work thoughts? Because I would have to think that what you were getting, these fragments that you were journaling, a lot of those could be used day to day for practical things in leading people and, and motivating people and guiding people. But, but for you, was it more professionally that you were using these things or personally that you were using these things? Well, I remember bringing it up, Brian. I started to change. You know, I was still in corporate America. I was still making all the money. I was still, you know, doing big deals and being very successful at it. Uh, but I started to change. My heart started to change. Uh, and all of a sudden, the things that had been important to me in the past were no longer important to me. And all of a sudden, I wouldn't step into places that I would have stepped into in the past to entertain customers. Uh, and and I didn't cuss anymore. And, and I knew drinking was an issue. I started uh, coming to that knowledge that that just, that didn't, what was going on in my spiritual life was very much different than what I was living in my professional life. Uh, and so I started to change. Um, I, I didn't really let my bosses see it. You know, I was struggling with God on it. I was like, God, please, please don't take this away. Please don't take that away. But Brian, I was loving the fragments that I was getting, all the knowledge that I was giving. And what it ended up being is it ended up being like a beautiful mosaic, uh, which is what the, what the book ended up being. And the crazy thing about it, and you asked my emotions, when I was writing, there are some things that I bring up that I just bawled over. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I bawled over. You know, and and I even wrote it in the book. You know, my I got a lump in my throat. I got tears streaming down my face. Um, you know, my dad. We we grew up in a household with a lot of abuse and neglect, and and uh, I've since forgiven my dad. But I tell you what, I hated him when we buried him. Uh, and the first two words that I wrote in my book was the start of chapter uh, three. I started chapter two. And the first two words were my dad and why I would have started with a story about my dad uh, to with the first two words that I wrote for the book uh, is beyond me. That's just a Holy spirit yeah. thing. And yeah. so um, I just, uh, I became a very different person and, and I knew that the two weren't going to go together. Uh, and my writing experience, it all poured out in 10 weeks. It was just mind blowing. Uh, it was not, um, there, there were days where I would hit a, a part where I wasn't feeling anything and I'd put the pen down. I didn't force any writing. There, there were three or four pages I wrote one day that I didn't feel like were right. 
and I ripped them up on the spot and threw them away. So when it came, it came and it fl flowed. And, um, and it was, uh, it was a very humbling experience. And then to, to have it published and then to have people, here's the, one of the coolest things, Brian, is I've got people in corporate America that I worked with for 10, 15, 20 years who have read it. I didn't even know they were believers and they've read it and they've sent me notes saying how it changed their lives and how it yeah. changed how they look at this or how they look at that. Uh, and to get those, that's, that's just a shocker. Uh, because it's kind of scary to put your stuff out there. Um, and let oh, the it, it is, Tony. And, and the, the thing that I have said, what what is so cool doing a book is that, you know, when, when and I have books on my bookshelf from friends of mine that are authors themselves. And, and the story becomes personal, more personal to me when I know the authors of the story. When I know, you know, we've, we've interacted, we've had conversations and then I read the story and it's like, it just becomes more powerful to me. And as a Christian, I'll, I'll go here for just a second, really knowing the author of the Bible intimately and having daily conversations with him, make the Bible come alive more in, in those ways. And so that's why prayer is so important. If, if you're a Christian that's why prayer is vital because conversations with the author of the book make the story more personal. And Absolutely. so I love what you said there. Did you have an aha moment? Did you have a moment? Cause I know what it was for my, for me in my book. Did you have a, a, a light bulb moment where you go, where you say to yourself, I'm really on to something or maybe something changed in your book and you go, Man, that was totally unexpected. I didn't expect to go here in telling this part right. of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was about, uh, I've been a Christian uh, close to 22 years now. The first 13 years, I categorized that season of my um, Christian discipleship as I was in the word, not in the spirit. And so I was, I had the wrong motives, Brian. I wanted to tell everybody else how they needed to live for God. So I was studying scripture. I've got a sister in full-time ministry. I was studying scripture. I used the same translation she used. Uh, I memorized verses and I told other people how to live for God when I wasn't doing it myself. And so that I was yeah. still, I had this ego going. Uh, I was in the word. I, I wanted command of the word. You know, that's what I wanted. I wanted command of the word. I wanted to be seen as important. It was still a, an ego-driven thing. What I now understand is God wanted the word to have command of me. Uh, and so I finally, um, I was in a psych ward once, and one of my uh, ministry buddies showed up, and he said, he said, Tony, and it was right at the end of these 13 years, he said, um, have you ever read First John? And I said, nope, I've read John, but not 1 John. He said, jump to the back of the Bible and read 1 John, which is all about God's love and God's light. Uh, and man, I got out of that psych ward and I studied 1 John. And all of a sudden, it was like I met the Holy Spirit, Brian. And at that point in time, I stopped studying scripture and just went with the Holy Spirit. And so where I had started out for 13 years in the word, not in the spirit, now, all of a sudden, I went three years in the spirit, not in the word. Yeah, and that, that is so good. good. Yeah. It was good, but. Well, and, and again, Tony, 
what happens is, and, and I'll say this, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll step aside and take another break, is that there are a lot of times when you're a Christian that you get really good at playing the role of a Christian. You know what to say. You know what to do. You know how to act. It's a lot like being, as you pointed out, and we'll get to that, that portion of your story in a minute. When you're in corporate America and you're, you're in the corporate office, you know how to dress. You know how to walk. You know how to talk. You know the right things to say. You, you act corporately. And, and you know, you can, you can spout the mission statement with the best of them. But what happens is, is all of a sudden the little tiny cracks that you see that nobody else sees start to become magnified. And then what happens is your hypocrite comes out at certain times. It's, right. be, it, it's because you're, 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 you're acting like a Christian. I'm not saying you, but, but, you know, and I've told people in, in my walk with the Lord, I know a good hypocrite when I see one because I was one. There right. have been times Absolutely. in my life where I was a great hypocrite. I could walk the walk. I could talk. I could say the right ministering things. I could look people in the eye and man, I could tell them things, but I was not living the life that I needed to be living. And I love what you said there about that because it's important. And no matter what you do, I, I don't care. And, and I've said this before. And, and in, in my book, chapter one was consistency. If you're consistent personally, you'll be consistent professionally, but you can't be consistent professionally if you're not consistent personally. Right. It, it'll never happen. And so I love what you said there, the underlying tone being consistency. That's right. what, and, and I hope people hear that when they hear that part of the conversation. Let's step aside. Let's take a break. Tony has alluded to his life. We're going to dive deeper into that story. You're going to want to hear it. A powerful message, a powerful story from a powerful man, the author of the book, Triumphant Surrender. Tony Green is my guest today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Back in a moment. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew, and he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger deeper and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up, Kindle if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of People Buy From People. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Tony, let's dive into your story. 
you you have alluded to the the parts of it being an executive, making money, having all those things. I want you to go back as far as you want to go from point A to where we are today and just just tell your story. And, and I'll, I'll probably ask some questions around that, but just jump in and tell your story to the folks that are listening today. Yeah, Brian, this is, it really took my addiction to bring this out in me. I mean, there, there's so much self-awareness that I've gained in, in uh, recovery uh, that has just been huge to me. But uh, the first counselor that I ever went to, and it was a faith-based counselor um, back in 2011, and he, he gave me the key to unlock the door to what my struggle was. And um, that, like I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of abuse and neglect in our household. And uh, most, most of us living in this world have dealt with some kind of childhood trauma. Uh, and I know it really um, affects a person and can, can haunt them 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years later. And so anyway, what this counselor uh, showed me was that I had this huge wound of being unloved and rejected. In a dysfunctional family, I was definitely the lost child. Uh, I was not the scapegoat, I was not the class clown, I was not the hero, I was the lost child, uh, being the youngest of the five. And I, I, I had this wound of unloved and rejected that I carried with me. And Brian, what it, I, can, I can look back now, I didn't learn this until 2011, but I can look back now and I can see my entire life Everything was about me performing so people would love me. So the more I went into a performance mentality, I've got a sister that grabbed the cross and went into ministry for her life. I've got a sister that grabbed a bottle of alcohol in high school uh, and, and has taken until her 60s to be able to release it. Uh, so we all spun out in different directions, but mine was performance driven. Uh, and everything I did, you know, it was, it was um, being quarterback in, in, in high school. Uh, it was being the, the number one gentleman in the fraternity uh, who treats women the, the best because I wanted the attention. I wanted them to love me. Yeah. And when I got into corporate America, I didn't know I was going to be in sales. All of a sudden, I end up in sales. I was going to be the best. Uh, and I, I became known as one of the top salespeople in the world for Coca-Cola system. Did you find that that you the the accolades from your and you mentioned your dad a, a few minutes ago you you talked about having that performance mentality from being a child did you find those times that your dad and mom were more loving more accepting more as parents should be when you performed well were, were that were those the moments that kept fueling you to continue to perform and feeling like that performance was the way you were going to get that love and acceptance? Yeah, but, um, you know, I've, I've had two phases of my growing up. I spent 13 years in small town, Arkansas. I've got most of that's a blackout to me. Uh, and that's where most of the abuse and neglect happened. And then we moved to Houston, Texas when I was 13. Uh, and that was a totally different story. Uh, the whole family didn't move down. It was just my myself and my sister, Beth, and then mom and dad. Uh, and we, uh, at that point in time, dad started getting into my football. 
you know, and, and, and playing football. And I remember him picking me up after games because I had a lot of speed. Uh, and, and if I just started running there, there were very few people who could catch me. And, um, I remember him picking me up, telling me how great a player I was, even though we were going 0 and 8 for the season. Uh, and then I worked at the movie theater and he would encourage me there. He was my boss. Uh, and I got some of my friends there. So encouragement was important to me. When I went off to college, it, it started becoming critically important to me. I had never really, I'd experimented with alcohol, but um, I'd never really, it wasn't a driver in my life. And then joining the fraternity was like getting all kinds of recognition. Uh, but, um, you know, and even in college calculus, I scored 399 out of 400 points. So everything was about me performing good so people would love me. And that crossed over into corporate America. And that's why I became so successful, Brian, is because of my childhood wound is what fueled me to success. But when I started, I hit a level with Coca-Cola where it was no longer about performance. It was about politics. Uh, and I missed three promotions in one year. And all of a sudden, my company didn't love me. You know, they had loved me for 20 years, but now all of a sudden they did not love me. And that's what my own head was saying. You know, it was just corporate politics. Uh, and all of a sudden, that is when I remember walking down a staircase uh, in Cincinnati one day. And instead of opening the right-hand door and grabbing the Diet Coke out at 6 a.m., I opened the left-hand door and grabbed a bottle of vodka. And that, that was the beginning of the downward spiral. So the same thing that made me really successful in corporate America was the exact same thing that brought me down. I got to ask you this because I, 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 I've been involved in athletics a long time, followed it, watched it. You see guys, Tony, with a chip on their shoulder. And people go, man, you know, that guy plays with a chip on his shoulder. And and it's it's almost a badge of honor, if you will. Right. To, to have that, to have that part of yourself. But it also, and and I could hear in your voice, you know, you go, man, I was fast. I was good at playing quarterback, but we were 0 and 8. You know, I, I could perform, but this happened. I I I performance fueled me but this happened did you ever feel like that 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 your performance was not going to be good enough or that chip on your shoulder so to speak was going to be an impediment rather than an advantage because i'll say this and and i want i want to get your answer is that if not handled correctly that chip on our shoulder just becomes a roadblock in, in our way a lot of times because it takes over and goes, well, obviously you're not good enough. What's wrong with you? What's, what's going on with you? Or the other way of don't they know how good I am? Don't they know that, that, that I am the guy here? Was that chip on your shoulder showed, so to speak, was it an impediment or fuel? Oh, gosh, Brian, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder, but that was just for show. You know, I knew and I knew in my head I was faking my way through it. I wasn't that aware of it, but I knew that um, there, there I knew there was a level of inauthenticity uh, to it all. And I remember I remember saying to myself and saying to my spouse at one point in time, uh, because my, my brain was I had a creative brain that could come up with new strategies 
Uh, I had like four different things that Coca-Cola had never done uh, in their entire 100 year history that came straight out of this brain. And uh, my resume was just incredible until I screwed it up. But, um, but I remember saying that if it was just based on my own talent, my own brain, that I could get to the top of the Coca-Cola company. Uh, but what I knew from the start was I didn't have the discipline to do it. And I didn't have the, I wasn't going to play the politics to do it. I had a streak of nonconformity in me and I wasn't going to play the politics to, to do what I needed to do to, to become one of the favored ones, you know, and, uh, and it turned against me, man. The biggest job I ever had was, uh, leading a billion dollars worth of business for Coca-Cola through Kroger. Uh, and uh, the first two years, the chief customer officer loved me, hired me, put me in place, supported me, encouraged me, um, spoke life into me. And then all of a sudden we got a new chief customer officer. Didn't like me. I wasn't part of, I didn't fit his mold. Uh, and I fell out of favor politically. And, you know, um, Brian, a, a lot of people in corporate America would just find a way to go through that, you know, and stick with the company. That would be the safe route. I, in essence, you know, I've been, I, I joke about this in the book. I, I dared Coca-Cola to go it alone without me. Uh, and um, when they turned disloyal to me, I, I went and opened my mind up to other jobs and found another job. And, you know, in addiction, we laugh about this mentality of I'll show you, I'll hurt me. Uh, and man, I, I bolted that Coca-Cola career. I was showing them. And now, man, I just, I love, I love that I was able to be so transparent with the book. Uh, and man, I just tell every bonehead decision that I ever made, uh, because, uh, people need to understand that they're not alone. I've got a couple more questions. I really appreciate you being so transparent, so gracious with your time. Take me through the biggest obstacle that you faced in your life. And, and, and maybe it was that moment where you woke up under the underpass in Cincinnati, um, and you alluded to it, but what were those moments like where, where all of a sudden you're a full blown addict and, uh, just take, take me through that, that, that period real briefly. And again, we don't, we want folks to go get the book triumphant surrender, but, uh, take us through those those obstacle moments, Tony. In the in the last few minutes, we have. Yeah, there there was a moment I can't even remember when it was about three years ago that I was staying in Cincinnati's biggest homeless shelter, uh, and you know the first homeless shelter I ever checked into, I drove up in my BMW convertible, but that was way before. So I've stayed in a number of homeless shelters, but I was staying in the biggest one and. And I had checked in on Monday and I was just a mess. You know, I was just a real mess. And um, on Wednesday, they kicked everybody out so they could do deep cleaning. Uh, and Brian, it was five degrees outside. And I had just a light jacket at best. I had no socks. Uh, I was just walking in the shoes I had. And I started, I had $7 left to my name. After making millions, I had $7 uh, left to my name. And I started walking towards the uh, convenience, the convenience store, which has a white castle in it. And it's about a mile walk. And I walked under an overpass and I remember five degrees, just freezing. I remember looking up and, and underneath the crevices of the overpass and seeing a couple of homeless people 
just wedged in there trying to stay out of the wind. Uh, and I'm telling you, Brian, it was like the devil screamed in my ear, go spend your last $7 on alcohol and climb up there. Uh, and I stood there and I, and I shivered and I considered it. Uh, and, and it must've been the Holy spirit that pushed me out from under that bridge because I went to the white castle and instead of going into the, the marathon next door and getting any alcohol, I just bought myself one cup of coffee. I spent one, one of the $7 on a cup of coffee. Uh, and in there, my head was able to clear enough to call up a discipleship program in Cincinnati called the Exodus program. I looked out the window of the White Castle and I could see the museum center. And it reminded me that just on the other side of the museum center uh, was the Exodus program. And sitting right there in the White Castle, I started texting a life coach that I knew over there. And I had an interview the next day to enter that program. And I entered, I entered for nine months. Uh, and stayed there for nine months. And um, what everything came down to, and I mentioned sleeping on the sidewalk, what everything came down to with me is I knew if I didn't change the way I thought about myself, that I was going to die in my addiction hanging from a rope. And, and that was what, that was my aha moment. And so it didn't matter whether that was overthinking uh, with my ego that I was really, really good and better than everybody else. I had to put away all comparative comparison thinking or whether I was thinking I was a piece of junk, you know, worse than everybody else. I, I At first, I thought I needed to seek self-esteem. But in the end, and I tried that, and that's speaking life into yourself, like you say, encouragements into yourself every morning, having affirmations. But in the end, the only thing that was going to work for me was building my God esteem. Uh, and to really get into the word of God and understand finally what happened to me is I started being in the word, in the spirit. First John tells us that the Holy Spirit's the best Bible teacher we could have. Yeah. And, and he will bring the truth alive to us. Uh, and that's what started changing me. And, and it built my God esteem up. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what my ex-wives think about me. It doesn't matter what the criminal courts think about me. It doesn't matter what my credit score thinks about me. It doesn't matter what ex-bosses think about me. What matters is what God thinks about me. And that's what I had to change was how I thought about myself. My deepest core belief uh, had to shift. My goodness. That is so powerful. Changing the way you think about yourself. Because, you know, People are great at times at lying to you. And I, and I said this this morning on, or yesterday morning on LinkedIn, we, we don't look at connection the way we ought to look at connection. We look at connection and say, I want to connect with that person because they'll do something for me. Right. Instead of connecting with them going, Hey, there's something about you that I want to get to know deeper and, and authentically connect. And I love what you said about a little while ago about inauthenticity, seeing it in yourself. You know, having everything good on the outside, but knowing, man, I'm faking my way through this and I'm not the person you think I am. And right. I, and I love that, Tony. Uh, I want to ask you one more question and I so appreciate our time together. Share with my audience the biggest piece of intentional encouragement that you have. Oh my gosh. Um, I know that there's so many in this audience, uh, even though there's some of us that aren't struggling I remember sitting in a church service at one point down in Franklin Avenue Baptist Church in New Orleans, 7,000 black members. I was the only white member, my wife and I. And I remember the, the music minister going up to the microphone going, 
Can you remember the last time you were in your prayer closet at 3 a.m. in the morning and you didn't know where your child was? Can you remember this? Can you remember? And, and he was speaking to, to times of absolute desperation. And uh, my wife and I looked and the place is going crazy. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, we hadn't lived through any of that yet. And it was like God must have been eavesdropping. Uh, because uh, all of a sudden things started to change in our lives and we, we had a lot of desperation in our lives. So uh, what I would like to tell uh, every listener out there uh, is that I know there are struggles. I know there are challenges. Uh, I just want you to understand that you are not alone. Uh, you are not alone. There is always somebody there to help. Uh, and sometimes our ego is too big to think we, to even ask for help. Uh, but one of the parts of my humbling is I had to understand that it was okay for me to ask for help. I was not invincible anymore. Uh, and, and we get in where we fit in. There is always, regardless of what your struggle may be, there is always a group somewhere. There are a group of people uh, that are there who have gone through the same thing as you. Uh, and then my final encouragement is just, oh, man, uh, if, if, if you're a person of faith, just it's not about trying harder. It's about believing bigger and surrendering deeper. Just go deep with God. Uh, go deep with Christ. Learn what your identity in Christ is. Uh, and that will totally change the way that you think about yourself. It, it, and, and the final piece is you're going to start living a life of gratitude. Uh, and for me, yeah. man, once a week, I put together a gratitude list. I know that sounds hokey. But my gratitude list is a mile long. And anytime I start to feel myself get into a bad attitude, I read my gratitude list and it totally changes it. Yeah, that's outstanding. That is so good. Tony, tell folks where they can find a copy of your book, get a hold of your book, connect with you. I know folks that okay. are going to listen to this are going to want to connect with you. Let folks know where they can do that. Okay, you can get uh, Triumphant Surrender. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Walmart.com. You can get it at Target.com. Uh, there are some local booksellers across the nation uh, that sign it. If you just do a Google search for Triumphant Surrender, uh, you know, when I, when I thought of that, that title three years ago, um, it, you Google searched it and nothing came up. Uh, but now if you pull it up, uh, a lot comes up and it's mostly about the book. Uh, but um, you can buy it at all of those places. Also, um, you can uh, learn more about the book and the story and my story on triumphantsurrender.com. Uh, and I've got an email address and I've got, it's triumphantsurrender at gmail.com. And then also I have a phone number of 504-387-3888. Wow. That's really cool that, that folks can connect with you that deeply. Tony Green, what an honor, what a privilege to have you today. And man, your story is powerful. And I'm so glad that you shared a part of it with us today on the Intentional Courage Podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me, Brian. It's been a joy. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.